Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute. Joining me this week and every week is my normal co-host, Bill Hamblett, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Bill, how are you? Ward, great. It's uh, another great day here in Beach Hall. Uh, we just wrapped up with our midshipmen summer interns. The Brigade of Midshipmen reforms tomorrow, so that our, uh, our third group of mids uh, finished up with us today. Uh, today and we um, outbriefed them on their uh, their final big projects for us and uh, yeah I know we've said it before on the show uh, or we've mentioned the internship on the show before um, but uh, you know it was really a blast to have uh, overall we had what 16 yeah 16 interns in three different groups over the course of the summer it went very quickly uh, we treated them like colleagues Um, And that we sort of, as we say, threw them in the deep end of content creation. If you check out both of our blogs, our history blog and our USNI blog, um, and you can navigate to those through the homepage at USNI.org, you see a lot of midshipmen content. So that was really awesome uh, to, to watch them create content. They shadowed our news team at the Pentagon and so some of them had never been to the Pentagon before, and it was very cool, not to mention uh, get an inside-the-ropes view of the DOD press operations via our USNI news team, Sam and Megan and Ben. So it was really, and watch our uh, some of our events at CSIS. Um, you know, we'll be doing this again next summer, so if you're out there um, as a, uh, a midshipman nationwide, really, we're, we're going to look to expand it insofar as it's compatible with NROTC units. Um, And we have to explore how that looks from a budget side and from a time available during the summer side. But uh, we're going to go ahead and call this a big victory and and say that it's now an established part of what we do during the summer. So uh, great times. They left today. It's sort of we feel like parents whose kids have gone back to school and the house is suddenly very quiet. Um, So, uh, no, good times. Uh, Great, great, great program. Um, another thing we wanted to talk about before we get to our guest, US and I News this morning, Ben Warner wrote a, a story about the Blue Angels getting Super Hornets. Um, the time frame is the end of 2019 season. Um, it's a how many dollar? Uh, $17 million conversion program. It's going to be nine uh, uh, Block 1 Super Hornet E and two Super Hornet uh, Foxtrot, the two-seat variant. Um, but they, they're taking some of the older Super Hornets, converting them to uh, Blue Angel jets. A couple conversions there, not just the paint job, but a few other things. They, they removed the nose cannon. I noted that in, in uh, Ben's coverage. That's good. Uh, that, that is a so good they're going to take the part out of the show where they strafe the audience? That's, <laughs> they're, they're leaving that out? <laughs> taking that piece out of, for, for the 2020 season, yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, I think they need to take the nose cannon out because that's where the uh, reservoir for the smoke goes. Um, and uh, details that you don't think about, you know, it's just like, oh, just paint it blue, and it's now a blue angel. Um, you know, there's smoke, there's inverted tanks, as we were talking before the show here. There's seven pounds of forward pressure on the stick at all times, which helps the blue angels be steadier when they're flying in very close parade formation. Um, and that, as we were talking about with the original mod to the F-18Cs that they fly now, was just sort of a engineer just hooking up a bungee cord and the real estate they use in the legacy hornet it does not work in the super hornet it does you don't have the same one for one uh, opportunity there so they have to figure out how to do 
that. Yeah, so, so even it, those it, details are hard. Yeah, to, instead yeah, of a bungee know. cord, it's going to be a spring mechanism or something like yeah, that. So. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's exciting. Yeah, you know, very blues exciting. getting the best. Yeah, we, the, and uh, we've, stuff. That, that's one of the things we've talked about here at Beach Hall. Uh, in May every year, we get to watch the Blue Angels practice show and the big show for the Naval Academy graduation. And, uh, you know, it's come up the last couple of years. People say, well, how, how much longer are the Blues going to be flying the Legacy Hornets? And we say, oh, I don't know. Now we know. It's you right. know, one more one more season. Well, I know the, Legacy, the, the Super Hornet is louder than the Legacy Hornet, so it'll be a louder show, uh, among other things. So uh, probably a faster show, too. So cool. Super cool. Cool. Uh, well, let's get to our guest today, uh, proving that Proceedings is not just a magazine for Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Uh, this uh, author who's joining us is Major Nick Nethery, U.S. Army, uh, and Nick wrote a piece in, in the August issue of Proceedings called Prepare to Fight in Megacities. Uh, and the deck says, uh, for urban warfare training to be real, the city has to move. Uh, Nick Nethery joining us today from... Uh, from Rota, Spain, where his unit is a, an or a explosive ordnance disposal unit with um, U.S. AFRICOM and U.S. UCOM. Uh, so, Nick, uh, thanks for joining us, and how are things in Rota? Good to be here. They are excellent. Very sunny, warm. What, what brings you to Rota? So, uh, our client units are various soft units that work for... Uh, U.S. Army, uh, excuse me, U.S. AFRICOM, and uh, we, I, I should say one thing, I I am not in an explosive ordnance disposal unit, I, I am now in a unit with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, and we do have bomb technicians, but we also have uh, several uh, nuclear physicists, and we have some chemical biological weapons experts, uh, as well as a, an intelligence and operations integrator, and some electricians that keep us uh, keep us honest and keep our equipment working. Um, and so we get to go around to various soft units and train and equip and support them. And it's, uh, might be the best job I've ever had. So the, the quality of people we work with is so good. And we get to, uh, we get to suffer in places like Rota. Very cool. So you are an army EOD officer, uh, but what is the name of your current unit and what's the mission of that unit? I'm the officer in charge of the AFRICOM technical support group, and we are a sub subunit of a program at DITRA, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, called Nuclear Enterprise. Um, the unclassed name of the program is Nimble Elder, and it's existed in various forms for almost 40 years, I think over 40 years now, um, and we, uh, we provide counter weapons of mass destruction advising, assisting, enabling, and equipping to the various COCOMs. So mine my, my is the AFRICOM team. There is one for each COCOM, as well as a home station unit uh, that, that can flex and support all, uh, any or all of us if need be. Got it. So if there were to be a weapons of mass destruction event uh, somewhere in the AFRICOM AOR, your unit would... Uh, do you do, you do a, a training and, and uh, advising role to that, or would you actually be on standby to go and respond to a WMD event? Most of what we do is training and equipping, and but but we do retain the capability and and deployability and readiness uh, that allows us to if if our client units and if uh, the COCOM decides to to put us on the continent with the operator 
Peters, we were able to do that. Got it. Got it. And in emails before, uh, as we were organizing this podcast today, you said something about being in Rota to do some dive training. So you guys have a, uh, a dive and underwater capability as well? Uh, so the unit we support here is uh, the EOD mobile unit. Um, and obviously they're, they're Navy EOD and they, they have a fantastic and broad dive capability, but we also do have uh, Navy EOD personnel within the team that can also dive with uh, the customer and uh, help help them conduct search activities. Very cool. Okay. So, uh, Nick, tell us a little bit about your article. So, prepare to fight in megacities. And I'll just uh, I'll provide a little bit of a background here. Uh, you essentially approached us with this idea. You had worked with one of our editors, Brian O'Rourke, before. Um, and you, you kind of say here that the U.S. military, Army, and Marine Corps, the training that they do to prepare uh, soldiers and Marines to fight in very dense urban environments is insufficient. So build off of that for me, if you would. Well, my first tour, uh, 05, 06, I was uh, in the 101st, and we we weren't in extremely dense urban areas. My, uh, my unit's AOR was to crit at that point. Um, not a, not an extremely dense city, but every time we went through the city or conducted any KLEs or any events within the city, I was always very aware of, of how different it was when we did anything in, in obviously in the moon dust open terrain outside uh, any of the cities. Um, I felt, I felt a, a real lack of training for that environment because I'd gone through uh, the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, and the closest thing you get to a dense urban area, at least at the time in 0405 when we were training up for that deployment, these are quote unquote cities that are unpowered and they're made out they're made out of you know Maersk shipping containers that have been welded together and they cut windows in them and and there's stairs on the outside. I had had the benefit of taking part in some mount training. By then, the the city at Fort Hood is actually I still think is pretty good. It has a dense um, uh, subway system underneath it, and the buildings are great, but they're unpowered. Uh, they don't have functioning infrastructure. Uh, even little things like signage, um, it, it's it just I think it would be better to replicate. Um, and as I went through EOD school, a lot of the training problems and a lot of the testing problems we did were in buildings they were the instructors at that point this is 07 08 when i went through school these a lot of these guys had just gotten back from their own deployments and some of them had worked in places like mosul and talafar and tikrit and and baghdad and they knew the unique challenges that eod in particular face in an urban environment. So they tried to replicate those problems for us in the schoolhouse. And it just, it really made me aware of the difference, not even with IEDs, just running our regular problem sets, just on exploded ordnance. Very much different in a city than in open terrain in, in desert or, or in uh, rolling hills. And then my, uh, the tour that we, I deployed my company in, 11 and 12 uh, in support of the 82nd Airborne Division uh, and then later Department of State. Uh, 
I ended up owning, I say owning, I, I wasn't in charge of the AO, of course, but I was, I was the EOD unit for all of Iraq uh, at the end of that tour. And I, in particular, I, was, I ran a lot in Baghdad, downtown, Green Zone. Uh, a lot of the trouble areas around that city and it was it just shocked me how little I, I was prepared for it even though we didn't have a we had a very punishing train up uh, that, that deployment and we still I, I felt like we could have been better prepared um, and so I started looking around and I read a few books um, over the next few years as I rotated home and, and was in staff positions and then later as I went to the staff college I read uh, things like Concrete Hell um, by Louis DeMarco, uh, which looks at historical urban warfare, and then uh, through modern modern offerings like um, Out of the Mountains, uh, which looks at it in a in a not even in a warfare sense, but just as a functioning in a dense urban area sense, which could be. A lot of his points, I think, could be applied to inner city policing just as easily as it could military operations in, in urban terrain. It, it just, as I read all of that, I couldn't help but come away feeling that we've inadequately prepared ourselves to function, and we've inadequately prepared pro probably the American public and government for how attritive that kind of warfare will be. So, so absent throwing a whole bunch of money, I mean, because you identify, Nick, in the article that, you know, these, these, in order to create the solution, not to mention maintain our existing training centers, uh, that's a very expensive proposition. Um, so you, you mentioned the fire department of New York City, particularly what, what's unique about that training center and how could that be applied in a hybrid sense to, uh, to what we're talking about in a military context? So I was uh, I was lucky enough to be selected uh, for a strategic broadening seminar uh, in the fall of 2017. It was the Mega Cities Strategic Broadening Seminar, um, and it took place at Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, in New York. And part of our activities, uh, myself and the other selectees uh, attendees, we went around, and it wasn't just the fire department; it was the Department of Emergency Services, uh, Department of Emergency Management, the uh, police department in New York, um, even corporate security uh, for some larger corporations I could name. And I was just really struck by the training facility that the FDNY has out at Randall's Island. Uh, they, they have gone to clearly great expense and great length to make sure that these kids that come through, uh, I say kids, not all of them are obviously kids, but these, these, the probies, the trainees that come through, they're just as brutally punished as possible, you know, while they're learning how to fight fires in a, in a, in a setting that I don't think a lot of firefighters nationwide really would ever encounter. Um, you know, fighting a fire in a vertical city, I think is much different than fighting one in horizontal city. And obviously I'm, I'm not a firefighter, I'm not an expert on that, but I was struck by how different that training facility is from previous firefighter training facilities that I'd experienced. For instance, when I was growing up 
growing up in Texas and as an ROTC cadet, we, we utilize a lot of firefighter training facilities. Well, they, I had never encountered anything like this. They have not huge, but they have kind of mini skyscrapers. They have simulated uh, commercial vessels. They have subway stations right there on the island. Um, they replicate as much as they can, I think, um, within budget and within reason. Chinatown, which is, I mean, we, the article talks about what is, how do you define a megacity? It's maybe when you exceed 7,000 people per square mile. Well, Chinatown has 88,000 people per square mile. That's almost inconceivable to somebody who hasn't walked around Chinatown. But how do you, I was just intrigued by how they they inculcate and they ingrain in their in their firefighters and their EMS trainees the complications uh, of dealing with high-rise and extremely narrow street situations. Um, and so I thought about it because I, I was going back, you know, to, to my next assignment. I thought, how can I, how could I have applied these lessons in my previous units and how can I apply them in the future? And I just, I thought back over, over all of the Joint Readiness Training Centers and National Training Center rotations that I've done, and those are great centers, and they're they're well run, and the people that work at them are very dedicated. But I just I don't know that it's adequate. So I I think that it would behoove the ground forces to build uh, something similar to Randall's Island, or at least a small part of Randall's Island that they call Sesame Street at major divisional installations um, and they have a great uh, integration there at Randall's Island they have a, a, a small detail of army active duty army drill sergeants who they're stationed I think technically at Fort Jackson is what they told me but their place of duty is up there in Queens uh, on Randall's Island and they do this for several weeks of indoc with, uh, with those probies um, that's great. It, it promotes kind of crosstalk in between organizations. It's always good to compare techniques, tactics, and procedures, you know, see what works uh, for other organizations and what works for you and cross-pollinate. And I think on a, on a more public service level, it just it kind of helps us interact, us active duty, it helps us interact with the public and kind of narrow the civil and military divide they also have a great program where your your uh, your ladder company or your 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 district one, one day uh, one day or maybe part of a week every year you bring your trucks in and while mechanics work on them and give them their annual services and change out the transmission oil and whatever they have to do on them you take that time the personnel the crews and you do either refresher training or you do initial training on, you know, maybe a new Jaws of Life or a, or a new rebreather that's going to be fielded to you soon. I think that's great, and I haven't seen, at least my, my time in the Army, I haven't seen an Army unit emulate anything like that. Usually maintenance day is maintenance day, and never the twain shall meet, you know? Yeah, that was a great uh, detail here, and I, I wanted to just, for our readers, just pull out a couple of the very interesting details in your piece because it it's just a great read and it's super interesting particularly for people who are 
you know, mainly think our, our readers are mainly naval officers, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard. Uh, of, of course, our Marine uh, readers and members, a lot of them have spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and have fought some of the, you know, urban combat that you experienced when you served in Iraq. Uh, but, you, you know, you point out a megacity is any city with about 7,000 people per square mile or higher. That's sort of the qualification. Uh, you go on to point out the Marine Corps and the Army's focus on maneuver warfare and the Air Force's on deep strike and the Navy's new distributed lethality all assume a freedom to move and attack anywhere from anywhere. And these combine to make the military almost congenitally, congenitally unsuited for a fight in a dense city. And then uh, you describe, you know, what a, a city really is like as opposed to a mount facility or one of these sort of pseudo cities that even as you mentioned at Fort Hood there's a pretty good one but high ground you know not ledges but thousand square meter office floors stacked 50 high Uh, in a city troops may think in two dimensions but they have to fight in three which includes not only up but also down Uh, in the presence of tightly packed civilian population there may, may be no such thing as a precision strike or permission ever to launch one. Um, and then you, you have this you know, incredibly, um, it's really a sobering uh, visual about the Randalls Island uh, FDNY training uh, facility. And you say how in their subway stations, the two simulated subway stations, that the prob- probationary first responders have to move out and work in the dark uh, and depths of the city's many tunnels and there's bright red and white striped smear zones, the areas where if you press yourself flat against the wall, an oncoming train will still smear you into paste along the rough concrete. So this is just a, a, it's a very visceral article. It's one where when you read it, you can go, oh, wow, I can understand what he's talking about here. This is really, this makes Fallujah look, uh, you know, almost two-dimensional by comparison, right? And Fallujah, we know, was a really tough fight uh, for the Marines back in Iraq. Um, so, you know, some very interesting points. So when you um, participated there, we're up there at Randall's Island. Uh, you know, what are some of the details you came away with? And also, what were um, what was your sense of how much that would cost for DOD to try to, you know, build or simulate some, something like that? Well, I, d- I don't want to give... I don't want to give the impression that I'm a, an expert on budget. I, I honestly, I could not get, and this is part of the reason that the article took so long for me to submit because I didn't feel right not giving a hard number on what it cost them. I I just could never nail down a city official or an FDNY official on what exactly that cost to construct or maintain. Uh, having been an XO of a couple larger units, I know what our buildings cost, our new headquarters, you know, a couple million. So I can't imagine what it costs for essentially an airplane hangar with simulated, you know, three to four story buildings and maybe a subway station. I don't know. I, our, our headquarters at Fort Campbell when I was there, I think was around two million when, when we moved into our new building. But I, but I so I, could, I don't know. I, I couldn't hazard a guess on that. I do know what we spend on, say, full-up power packs for M1 tanks on Fort Hood in a, in a month. And it's in, I mean, it's in the tens of millions, you know. Um, yeah, so so budgets, budgets that, are always a... I don't think a, either expense is, 
necessarily should cancel out the other, but right, we spend right. a lot of money on a lot of things that I, I don't I don't know what's I don't know what's a bigger priority training training for urban warfare or maintaining a you know a squadron of, of tanks for a month I, I don't know I, I hate to have to be the one I would hate to have to be the one to make the call on we only have money for one of those things but I mean the, my premise in the article is sooner or later we're going to have to do it so let's spend that money now so the guys are at least a little better trained um, than they would be otherwise some of the some of the things that I really noticed about Randall's Island that I that it just didn't make it into the article or, or that, that they just had to get cut for space. Um, I may have mentioned scissor stairs in the article. You did, yes. Uh, if you didn't, if you didn't grow up in a big city, you have no idea what that phrase means. Uh, the idea that I can go up one one flight of stairs, but somehow magically be two flights up, uh, uh, you know, as as judging from the outside, that's, I, I didn't understand that myself. I, I, it's, it's a way to, it's a way to save space and it's a way to save concrete. If you're the contractor building that building, but a lot of people who didn't grow up in tenements or have never been in a housing project, they don't, they don't have any idea what that means. And just imagine an infantry platoon leader, platoon commander, or an infantry company commander going in and, you secure the ground floor, and then you move your guys up the landing. If you're on the wrong side of the building, you've skipped an entire story that you still have to secure. That's a huge. That's a huge problem. Um, so, I mean, there's little things like that that I think Sesame Street-like training facilities would would help uh, teach the guys. Another thing was one of the chiefs. Uh, one of the chiefs was talking about. And this, so this is the fall of 2017 where we're having this conversation. A few months before that, they had shut down a few streets around, I want to say the 6th Precinct in, in Manhattan, to do some work on uh, one of the subway lines. And they had accidentally broken through into, uh, I guess you'd call them the sub-subway tunnels. And they started pulling up old pieces of wood. It looked like they were pulling up boxes. And nobody, nobody knew, nobody knew what the, what these were, um, and so they 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 contacted some historians of the city, some you know some NYU professors or, or what have you, and got them to come down and look. And they realized they were digging up subway or sewers. They were digging up sewer systems from the 1600s. Wow. These these are, you know, and and you know, lady. 1700s, 1800s, when the city grows, when they, they they build on the foundations of the previous city, they didn't bother tearing them up. They just they just made new tunnels over them. They just paved over them, and it it really made me think. There's areas in New York, and this is just New York. We're not talking about Mumbai. We're not talking about Stuttgart. We're not talking about Karachi. Lagos, we're not talking right. about Seoul. Just New York. There are three or four levels down and you can still find tunnels from 400 years ago you know yes that just really shook me yeah hey another point that you bring up and this is on page 60 of the article and this is a comment uh that um it echoes comments that we've heard from some of our other writers about 
the reality or, re, you know, how realistic training is and how realistic the opposition forces can operate in an exercise. And is it okay in realistic combat training for the good guys to lose on occasion, right? So you bring up, uh, you say, every divisional and large-scale training post, both Army and Marine Corps, should build its own Sesame Street with simulated subway station underneath, run companies and battalions through it regularly, and at the same time replace opposing forces who pretend to, pretend to put up a good fight before they roll over and let the good guys win. Model the op for on the aggressor squadrons that the Air Force and Navy fighter squadrons face and develop doctrine that permits emulation of tactics of prospective adversaries. Let both sides fight to win and let the one team lose on its merits. So both sides can uh, make mistakes and learn. So this is a, a point, and, and it, it echoes what Admiral Smith, or sorry, Admiral Swift wrote about in proceedings, talking about large-scale exercises in the Pacific Fleet, um, called um, uh, the 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 what? All right, help me, Ward. C two. No, no, no. The big exercises that uh, Swift has put together out in the Pacific Fleet. Uh, um, okay, I'll I'll think of it in a second. Um, but he's been talking about and writing about the need for uh, exercises where uh, the blue forces, you know, could lose, uh, and how that imp how important that is to um, uh, to learning in an exercise. And you know, it can't just be about uh, you know going through the paces and sort of you know um, you, you know you know the blue guys the blue forces are going to win in every exercise. You can't you can't just have that if you're going to go up against uh, a really well trained um, agile adversary. So. Uh, it's interesting to see your comment, your article, sort of build off of that same theme that we're seeing from other authors as well. And I don't know that that's, that's a training problem necessarily. I think it also has to do a lot with. I've seen, I've seen in recent years, Tom Ricks and a couple other people talk about how it used to be possible to lose those exercises, and it didn't ruin your career. You know. Right, that's tied it into to it, right? Possible, yep. Uh, or, or even to get relieved. There's, there's a lot of generals in World War II in Korea that got, they got relieved at division command, and then later on they were given a second chance. That doesn't happen anymore. So there's this huge pressure on them. I don't want to say to manipulate the results, but I mean, if if you lose a war game nowadays at the battalion or higher level, your career's over. So, which promotes we that idea of as maybe yeah. we should. That, underwrite failure and allow for some creative risk. Amen. So we've also, uh, the, the term I was looking for that Admiral Swift has used is fleet problems. Uh, they reinstituted those in the Pacific a couple of years ago. Uh, it's large fleets, fleet level exercises uh, building off the fleet problems that the Navy used in the interwar period. Uh, and, they're br and they've brought back a very strong op for uh, that is not scripted, that has the opportunity to play and play dirty. Uh, and, you know, see what happens, see what the outcome is. Um, I will point out that your article, since we posted it online at the beginning of August, has received some online comments. Uh, one commenter said it would be sort of the height of folly for the U.S. to ever enter into a battle in a mega city. Like, you would just go around it or you would cut that city off, but following the enemy, following the adversary into a mega city where the the environment is just so complex and it's surrounded by people who are, you know, non-combatants, uh, that that would just be uh, a crazy thing to do. So I, I wanted to pose that question to you and let you 
uh, you know, talk about whether you think that that is uh, is true or whether you know we may not even have the the choice in a future conflict. Well, and to put a finer point on that question, Nick, um, you mentioned and Bill said uh, mentioned Fallujah earlier in the show, but you say you say early in the article the urban fighting in Fallujah and Mosul in Iraq demonstrate both an exception and the unpreparedness of the military to fight in a DUA. <clears throat> a dense urban uh, uh, area. More than 20 years after the disastrous Battle of Mogadishu should have raised concerns. So is what is that the lesson, what Bill just asked? Is that the lesson of Fallujah? If, just go around it, avoid it? Or, or is the lesson better preparedness with better training? I would absolutely agree that it's not desirable. I, I think it is undesirable to the point of yes possibly folly to go into a city but centers of gravity aren't always actual terrain sometimes the population is the terrain that you need to deny to your enemy i i don't think that it's ever going to be my call uh i think it's going to reside at echelons far above my bug's eye view whether or not we need to go into a city but I also think it's it's not unimaginable that they decide at those high echelons that we do need to do that. If that happens, I don't want to have to I don't want to have to spend my men's lives because of hope. Because we were just hoping. To me hope isn't an option or it's not not that it's not an option. It's not you can't just plan against hope. Um I hope we never do have to go to go into something dense. Uh, I just I I'm, I worry what will happen if we do, and we just haven't prepared for it. Um, there's been a lot written the last few years too about about what exactly what I just said about whether is the is the human population can that really be considered a center of gravity? Can we talk about the culture of a city, the the intricate interweavings of church and militia and business that, that make up a city, can we call that terrain? Is that too dehumanizing or is it apt? I don't know. I think there are a lot of questions there that are good questions to have. And even, even if we argue about them, I think it's good to have that argument. I just think it's, I would say, the height of folly to assume that we'll never go into a city. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, your second to last paragraph in the article says the U.S. cannot afford a gradual learning curve as bodies pile up in alleyways and on fire escapes. Over-reliance on networks, precision navigation, trustworthy communications, and a presumption of good situational awareness will get soldiers and Marines killed. Uh, the military needs to start 10 years ago. So, you know, back to your answer to that, uh, the commenter online who said, hey, this would be the height of folly to, to fight in a, in a uh, mega city. You know, your point that sometimes political uh, decision makers make decisions that the military uh, advisors would say, geez, that's really a bad idea, including many who said, you know, we should not have gone into Iraq in 2003. So uh, sometimes you, you, you do have to prepare. And if you're not prepared for where the the national leadership takes you, then uh, the, the the preparation will be expensive and it will be immediate and it will be bloody. So uh, it's a great, really great conversation. Um, so the article is called Prepare to Fight in Megacities. The author is Major Mi Nick Nethery, U.S. Army, 
Uh, Nick joined us on the line today via Skype from uh, Rota, Spain. And uh, Nick, uh, thank you for writing for Proceedings. It's great to have uh, uh, an Army officer uh, in the pages. And it's great to have this piece because it's about a topic that, uh, you know, was not in Proceedings for quite some time. Uh, urban environment, fighting in megacities, uh, ground warfare, land warfare, something that was uh, that is a popular conversation for many of our our marine um, members and, and authors as well. So uh, thanks very much for joining us and thanks for writing for proceedings. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was good to be here and I look forward to speaking with you all again. Great. We'll send you a link to the podcast when we get it posted. And then it'll be in our uh, our weekly newsletter as well that we'll send out to all of our members uh, here in uh, probably tomorrow afternoon. So uh, thanks again, and I uh, hope your tr con continued training goes well in Rota, uh, and uh, give our best to the Navy EOD unit there. Absolutely. I'll pass that along. Thank you, sir. All right, everybody, that'll do it for this week's show. As always, remember to follow the Naval Institute on Twitter and like us on Facebook. You can find this podcast on iTunes. If you search Naval Institute, you can find the Proceedings Podcast on iTunes. We're also on SoundCloud. So thanks again. And remember, as always, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next week. <laughs>